Hey, I'm Carl from Champaign, Illinois. Hey, I'm Dan from Arkansas. I'm Joy from St. Louis. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Craig Finn is the front man for the band The Hold Steady. He's also got a new solo album out. When he was 12, he bought Let It Be. No, not the Beatles album. It was a punk album by The Replacements, and it contained what was soon to be Craig Finn's favorite song of all time. Putting the needle down and, and, and hearing the first song, I Will Dare, is that... It was, you know, shambling and, and romantic. and I mean, it, it, the whole album stands out to me, just how drunken and obnoxious and belligerent they could be, but then just really vulnerable and sensitive, too. It's Bullseye. This week on the show, Craig Finn of The Hold Steady talks about the unpredictable and emotional music of the punk band The Replacements and how one of their songs changed his life. Video game journalist and TV host Morgan Webb talks semiotics, video games, and who really makes up the gaming community. And I talk to the actor Benedict Cumberbatch about putting his own spin on one of pop culture's most ubiquitous heroes, Sherlock Holmes. Plus, he'll reveal what he learned after being carjacked at gunpoint, tied up, thrown in a trunk, and left for dead on the side of the road in South Africa. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week we're joined by a culture critic who gives us some recommendations for stuff out there in the world of culture that is worth your time. This week we're joined by Jason Kotke, the proprietor of Kotke.org, perhaps the world's greatest collection of links to stuff. He joins us from his office in New York. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jesse. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm very excited about talking about hams. Ham. We're about to go ham. (laughs) Um, so our first pick, as implied by our intro, is uh, these two or are these two short documentaries on this guy, Alan Benton, who makes ham. Well, it's a very intense, cured, smoky flavor. If you don't like smoke, you're not going to like my bacon. They're, they're all cured with salt, brown sugar, and, and pepper. It's the way that my family has done it for generations. So what is it that you like so much about these ham documentaries? <laughs> well, I mean, Alan Benton's a unique guy. He, he, uh, he has himself a ham smoking and curing business that he's run since 1973. And uh, his, his focus is on quality. And to do quality hams, he needs to spend a lot of time with the ham. He needs to age it. He needs to cure it. And, uh, you know, he can't, he's not going to pump out these hams... Uh, cured hams every 90 days he he you know he lets them go for a year maybe even two years to age and uh you know now there's hundreds of restaurants i would say in in new york city alone that that serve his ham tell me a little bit about the films themselves what's compelling about seeing this guy and seeing this guy talk about what he does well there's a couple of films the the shorter one is interesting because you he's being interviewed in his office and he's interrupted by the telephone ringing and it's, you know, it's a a black rotary telephone uh, sitting on his desk. And it's the, I think it's the main line for his company 
So he's sitting in there doing the interview, and, and oh, excuse me, I have to take this call. And he picks up the phone and, and talks to a, a potential customer about ordering hams or something. And that, you know, and it happens like two or three times. And, and it's just, I don't know, it, it's just so old school, you know? Like he just, that's what he does. He like, he's the owner of the company and he sits there and answers the main phone line. When he's not smoking the hands. Exactly. I'm sure when he's out, you know, in the smokehouse or whatever, the phone just goes unanswered and, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any answering machine or, or voicemail. It just rings and rings like it used to do, you know, 30 years ago before such things were invented. The first day on the job, the only high-tech equipment we had was this rotary dial telephone. We didn't have an adding machine, a calculator. I had a pencil and paper. At that time, a lot of my business... Let me see if one... Is it okay? Hold on. Benton's Country Hams. All right, what would you like to have, Randall? Let's talk a little bit about this documentary, Senna, which is your other recommendation. This is a documentary about a, a legendary Formula One driver. Now, Formula One is the second most popular sport in the world, although you wouldn't know it here in the United States where it is not even the most popular motorsport. Um, it's, you know, well behind stock car racing. Um so tell me a little bit about uh, Ayrton Senna, the, uh, the focus of this film. Yeah, so Senna, he grew up in Brazil. He was a great driver. He's, you know, in terms of like pure skill, like he was, he was the guy. That day, I suddenly realized that I was no longer driving it conscious. And I was in a different dimension for me. The circuit for me was a tunnel, which I was just going, going, going. And I realized I was well beyond my conscious understanding. And I think in a perfect world, he would have won every race. He was the fastest driver in qualifying all, all the time. But, you know, that's, that's not the way the world works. You know, there was also politics. There was in-race politics. There was the politics of Formula One in general. You know, the, when he was coming up, the best driver was Elaine Prost, who was French. Senna is Brazilian, uh, kind of an outsider. And uh, the Formula One president at the time was also French. So he, he didn't know how to get in there and sort of play the politics of the whole situation and, and kind of lost some things that didn't have anything to do with racing. You know, the best guy should win. But, you know, the story of Senna shows that that, that doesn't always happen. Well, Jason Kotke, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Bullseye. No problem. Thank you, Jesse. Jason Kotke recommends two short documentaries about Alan Benton's Smoky Mountain Country Hams, as well as the hams themselves, we should mention, and the documentary Senna, which is out now on DVD and on Netflix Instant. You can find the links to those short documentaries on kotke.org and the link to the kotke.org post on our website at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Guinness Book of World Records says that Sherlock Holmes is the most represented fictional character in film and television history. More than six dozen men have plopped a deerstalker cap onto their heads, put a pipe between their teeth, and stepped in front of a camera to solve some mysteries. 
But my guest, Benedict Cumberbatch, is more than just the latest to take part in a proud and tweedy tradition. His Holmes is a different breed. He's the star of Sherlock, the BBC One series that's captivated the UK with 10 million viewers an episode. It moves Holmes and Watson into the present day. No more Deerstalker, no more Tweed. The royal scandals involve internet dominatrices, not opera singers, but Holmes' brilliant mind and impatience for everyone else on earth besides Sherlock Holmes remain. Here's Cumberbatch as Holmes from the show's first series, demonstrating his detective powers at a crime scene. Victim is in her late 30s, professional person going by her clothes and guessing something in the media, going by the frankly alarming shade of pink. Travel from Cardiff today, intending to stay in London for one night. It's obvious from the size of her suitcase. Suitcase? Suitcase, yes. She's been married for at least 10 years, but not happily. She's had a string of lovers, but none of them knew she was married. Oh, for God's sake, if you're just making this up... Her wedding ring, 10 years old at least. The rest of her jewellery has been regularly cleaned, but not her wedding ring. State of her marriage, right there. The inside of the ring is shinier than the outside. That means it's regularly removed. The only polishing it gets is when she works it off her finger. It's not for work. Look at her nails. She doesn't work with her hands. So what, or rather, who does she remove her rings for? Clearly not one lover. She'd never sustain the fiction of being single over that amount of time, so more likely a string of them. Simple. It's brilliant. When he's not solving crimes, Cumberbatch has made time for roles in War Horse and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, among others. And he's got some pretty high-profile film roles on the horizon. He'll be the bad guy, or as he's put it, the not-so-good guy in the new Star Trek film. And he'll voice Smog the Dragon in The Hobbit. The grand finale of the second series of Sherlock airs Sunday, May 20th on PBS. And the second series hits stores on DVD a few days later. Benedict Cumberbatch, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be on the show. Sherlock Holmes, depending on your definition of fictional character, Mm. I think that um, God, Jesus, and Santa Claus appear in more films and television shows than Sherlock Holmes. um, (laughs) Only just. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes has been in hundreds of films and television programs portrayed by dozens of actors and when you audition for this role you're running up against not just you know basil rathbone or whatever but uh, this accumulation of of cruft of hundreds of people yeah um and ideas of hundreds of people Mm. how can you when you get the sides for an audition for a part like that how can you do anything that's not just a pastiche of your ideas of what this guy is? How do you find something that's actual in that? That's a good question. Um, well, what did I do? I I saw the strengths of their script. I saw what they were wanting to bring to life. Uh, but yeah, you're entering a pantheon of what seventy plus actors have already trodden in in in, in the footsteps of that role. I, but you can't. You just disassociate with all that. It's a little bit like going for any audition. You you walk into the room and you forget the fact that you've just left a waiting room with five other people who are equally, if not better, suited for the part than you. And you think I'm the only person they're seeing today. And that's all that matters is what happens now. Because you can't take on that baggage. You know, any any level of performance and craft in, in, in the performing arts is about being present in a moment. And I think while there are some massive technical uh, things to master with Holmes, feats of memory and line learning, which I always struggle with, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the physical technicalities of 
hitting a mark, speaking at that that pace, and uh, the, the alacrity of his is his movement, and as well as his intellect. You know, all of that requires a certain amount of technical skill. But you you still the best takes, the ones that work, are the ones where you that just happens, and it's then it's a given, and something fresh occurs. Christ, I mean, we had a bit of a blank canvas with this one. It's 21st century, after all, and while Holmes is a modern man and was, you know, up to his eyeballs in cutting-edge um, science and um, the burgeoning technology of, of science, you know, criminal pathology in, in his original state, you know. It's always pouring one beaker into another beaker. Well, you know, that's a bit of that going on, exactly. But, you know, my point is that, you know, there's, you know, he he's somebody who there's a lot to draw parallels with in modern life um, from the original as there is obviously having him in modern life. There's a lot that I can use that's modern that's going to make it feel as if it is a fresh take on Holmes. And also I think what they thought I'd lend to it, which is true because of the way I look and I have a high neck and you know, done stuff in period costumes before, is is that you know I I've got a slightly old world, um, old soul, otherworldly quality, um, which sort of marries that that junction between someone who is Victorian, who we are honouring as a Victorian hero, even though he's playing with an iPhone and surfing the net and you know um, performing a million. Um, uh, sort of social and modern media functions in a, in the blink of an eye. I, I I guess that was it, really. I guess that was it. It was just going in with confidence, the confidence that that character required and the script and the updating of it required. The confidence of Sherlock Holmes is more than just confidence. It comes from the fact that he essentially lives in a different world than everyone else who surrounds him, even the person that he relates to most which is dr watson he still is he still is in his own world and his confidence is really just a matter of almost floating above or dazzling above everyone else it's like a crazy headlong dash in a through space yeah it is it's something sort of slightly uh 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 or other than human. I mean, what it is really is that he's making synaptical connections faster than we can think, but he's verbalizing them at the same time. So he is speaking at a, a speed of thought, which is pretty daunting to most people, let alone that he can structure language around it to communicate and explain it. And I think what he ciphers out of his life, much to the cost, and that's a lot of what um, this, this second series, the story arc of, of his development is, is these obstructions as he sees them to being robotic in his ability to solve things logically and have control and power through being able to organize and understand the world logically. And then he meets his polarity in Moriarty, who is all about trying to explain that there is no logic, there is no control, there is only chaos, and I am going to bring about chaos, and you will have to embrace it because you need me. Or if you don't, you have to fight it, but either way, you need me. And I I think that's that's kind of... You know what what he achieves, Sherlock, is almost superhuman. But actually, what I love about him as a hero, as an iconic hero, and one that took with the first series children back to the original books to read him, and and love him as a hero in the modern world, or in the in the original books in in the Victorian world, is the fact that it's achievable. It was based on a doctor that 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 you know um, Conan Doyle knew, who who formed these massive. Uh, well, narratives really out of sporadic uh, detail that were sewn together to form fact of deduction, to, to, to bring together a point of view or an understanding. You know, an A to B commute, uh, commute with Sherlock Holmes in London is suddenly a pop-up book of adventure and possibility. It's, he, he turns the world into something rich with narrative. 
and that's why he works. That's why he still works. That's why lo- stories love story writers love to use him because he's a gift to story writers. He is he carries around so many stories and what he sees. You can watch one series or one episode of ours and. Uh, you think, uh, you know, you, you, gosh, so much happened. It's, sometimes an awful lot doesn't happen because it's about what is perceived to have happened through this man. He makes these massive leaps which cut out huge needs for, you know, slow procedural bit by bit. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. He just gets it all in the blink of an eye. And it's th- it's just thrilling to go on a ride with him. But what I do like about the superhuman quality is actually in a weird way. A, how being human is his gravity, and actually what I think this series is also about is is discovering that's a strength, that feelings, emotions, things that he has ostracized himself uh, from in order to protect, maintain, and master this cold, calculating, logical machine that he wants to be are actually sources of strength for that cold, calculating, logical machine because he still has to have an understanding of humanity in order to control it or, or save it or whatever it is that he is a, as an ego wants to achieve. After a break, more with the actor Benedict Cumberbatch from PBS Masterpieces, Sherlock. He'll reveal what he learned after being carjacked, abducted, and left for dead in the trunk of a car, all of which really happened to him. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio. International. Hey gang, Max FunCon East is already half full. If you want to come join us and our friends at WNYC in the Poconos for a weekend of fun and adventure. Yes, that's right. I said adventure. It's not true, but I said it. Then go to maxfuncon.com to get your tickets now before they're all gone. Maxfuncon.com. Look, I'm not going to tell you who we have booked, but I will say that we have one person booked, a genuine legend who is the single Max FunCon guest about whom I am most excited ever. Max FunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays the titular character on PBS masterpieces Sherlock. It's a modern take on the most famous of all fictional detectives. In this clip from the series' first episode, Sherlock Holmes impresses his new companion, Dr. John Watson, played by Martin Freeman, by telling him everything he's picked up about him in the short time since they've met. When I met you for the first time yesterday, I said Afghanistan or Iraq. You looked surprised. Yes, how did you know? I didn't know. I saw. Your haircut, the way you hold yourself, says military. Your conversation as you entered the room. A bit different from my day. Said trained at Bath, so army doctor, obvious. Your face is tanned, but no tan above the wrists. You've been abroad, but not sunbathing. Your lips really bad when you walk, but you don't ask for a chair when you stand like you've forgotten about it. So it's at least partly psychosomatic. That says the original circumstances of the injury were traumatic, wounded in action then. Wounded in action, suntan, Afghanistan, or Iraq. One of the things that I found the most compelling about the relationship between Watson and Holmes um, is... That uh, Wat, uh, that Watson, as, as portrayed by Martin Freeman, is a, a veteran. He's an army doctor, as in yes. his stories. Yeah, and he's um, struggling with post traumatic stress disorder, post traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, and um, you know, PTSD is something that can it, it can cause tremendous difficulties in relating to others that's one of the greatest um challenges that people with ptsd suffer from 
And, um, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, it's very vivid for me because I grew up, I grew up in a family with a father who was disabled by service related PTSD. And, um, you know, watching these two characters who each in their own way is struggling to find, are, are struggling to find a way to relate to each other and mm. to the world. Mm. Um, is it's kind of is moving, a, isn't it? I mean, it's it's kind of moving, and it's uh, in a way, you know, jokes aside about what the sexuality or implied sexuality of either of them. I mean, Christ, John's a ladies' man, and he's asexual until he meets Irene Adler, and then something switches on in him which he thought he had control over. But I I I, I agree with I think what you were, you were pointing out, which is that they are two men find, trying to find a context in society, and both have. Uh, one through something imposed, I guess, by the trauma of being in, in the theatre of war, and the other self-imposed have these um, elements that make them both outsiders. So they find a community with each other and a source of strength from each other, and that's that's very touching to me. And I think you know, I, I spoke to a lot of um, people, well, two, two or three people, particularly at, um, at, at an awards ceremony, GQ, GQ Awards this year, who were. So grateful to Martin's performance and portrayal of Watson because, you know, while it's great fun and it's distracting and it's good fun telly for them to watch, they felt that something was being represented. Now, of course, with his character, it's not, it's not a disability through an IED. It's not a, it's not a trauma that's marked him physically. He has a sort of socio, uh, sociopathic, a so psychosomatic associated wound, uh, which you know Sherlock gets very, very early on. Um, as not being to do with his leg, but something else. Uh, what his problem is, is that he, in a sort of Travis Bickle vein, I guess, can't reassimilate with society because he actually misses the thrill of the theatre of war. And that's a very dark and awkward and difficult um, thing to confess to, which I guess is why it's sort of surfaces as nightmares and, and the limp, because you're, 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 you're suppressing a desire to go back into combat for the, thr- the thrill of being that adrenalized by knowing your life is uh held in the balance by a, a thread and you know and your colleagues around you and your your entire situation is constantly insecure i mean that's quite something to admit to actually enjoying and i think it's sort of shameful in a way to some people um but you know it's born out of service and dignity and honor and, and being a good soldier which are all qualities that should should be anything but shameful and i think you know an awful lot of people coming back from service in the wars that that we're fighting at the moment and have been fighting over the last 10 years um have have a huge problem with with assimilating uh, back into a society that views them as doing a necessary job but as a little bit off put by the idea that you know they've they might have killed people or experienced things which are beyond their understanding and you know, what, was it really a legal war? And all, all the politics that confuse the basic, pure fact of being a soldier, which is just, well, from my point of view, unfathomably hard. I don't know how people do it. And it's, a, it's you know, people talk about heroics and uh, lists of people and all sorts of nonsense which is going on at the moment with me. And I, I just think it's embarrassing because you think of the people who deliver our security, whether they're fighting abroad, whether they're policing our borders here, whether people who take care of the elderly who are single mums, people who are teaching the underprivileged in our world, who are doctoring areas. In the, there, there's a huge body of heroism going on all the time. So um, it's very nice that we have a character that's, 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 that's fully ingrained in that world and that Sherlock has a real respect and understanding of, of Watson's military um, background. 
uh, capabilities and um, that, that you know that's meted out in the first instant they meet and obviously by the end of that episode for those who haven't seen it I won't say anything but basically Sherlock owes his life to Watson and that's the bond that that that, that bears them through all the highs and lows of living with a very difficult flatmate which alone is a heroic feat on, Sherlock, on Watson's part I think I would not like to live with Sherlock but anyway there we go I prefer my fridge to be clean of fingers and heads have more fresh lettuce in the uh, crisper drawer and stuff like that It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Benedict Cumberbatch. He stars in PBS masterpieces Sherlock. In this clip from the Series 2 premiere, Benedict Cumberbatch's ever-observant Sherlock Holmes may have finally met his match in the seductive Irene Adler, played by Laura Pulver. Now tell me, I need to know. How is it done? What? The hiker with the bastion head. How was he killed? That's not why I'm here. No, 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 you're here for the photographs, but that's never going to happen. This is we're here just chatting anyway. That story's not been on the news yet. How do you know about it? I know one of the policemen. Well, I know what he likes. Oh. And you like policemen? I like detective stories and detectives. Brainy's the new sexy. This is a car. Uh, the position of the car relative to the hiker at the time of the backfire, and the fact that the death blow was to the back of the head, that's all you need to know. Okay, tell me, how was he murdered? It wasn't. You don't think it was murder? I know it wasn't. How? The same way that I know the victim was an excellent sportsman, recently returned from foreign travel, and the photographs I'm looking for are in this room. Okay, but how? So they are in this room. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask you a, a, a sort of a personal question. Sure. Um, and you can, you can answer this to the extent that you feel comfortable. Sure. Um, uh Quite a, quite a while ago, you were uh, you were carjacked and abducted yeah. in um, in South Africa while shooting a, a entirely different project. This was yeah, in two thousand four, right. I believe. Yeah, um, and you know the the trauma associated with that, I can only I can only presume must have been tremendous. Um, and I wonder how how going through that experience affected your life. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, it, it, there's one minute where I can empathize with, with Sherlock's impatience. I think it made me for a while, that was the hardest thing for anyone around me to deal with, was that I I yearned for a life less ordinary with every second I had to breathe because I came face to face with some very plain facts. One is that you die on your own. No matter who you're with or who you're leaving behind, you have to face death on your own. And also the fact that I was too young to die uh, made me uh, angry to live, if that makes any kind of a sense. So I, I, I had a sort of profound insight, really, and a fantastic dinner party anecdote at the hands of these people who, you know, it could have been a lot worse. I could have been left with scars, physical and, and emotionally, that, that could have been a lot worse. I wasn't, um, I wasn't beaten up. I was pushed around a bit, but and tied up and put in the boot of a car as well as the side of the road. But and had a gun put to my head. But I wasn't pistol whipped i wasn't beaten with a stick i wasn't kicked i wasn't raped i wasn't uh cut you know it was an awful lot that didn't happen that i can be thankful for because ultimately it was a small event in a very big country and the next day there was a newspaper headline to give perspective and immediately rationalize what had happened to us and and uh you know give a context for how uh this is something to be uh got over rather than be traumatized by a man was hijacked carjacked at the side of uh, uh, not at the side of the road at a crossing 
and the guy panicked and shot him before he even knew what was in the car and there was a two rand coin which is I mean it's it's decimal points uh, doesn't even value a cent and a lighter that was all that was in his car there was the car and the guy got caught and I don't even know if he was shot as well or whether he was taken down but um, it, it was it was a very very big event in my life but um it's one that I've learnt from rather than being traumatised from. I went to see a counsellor the minute after it happened and we had that on offer and one of the actors I was with didn't and the other actress did. And I think it was harder for them. Um, and I'm not going to speak for them on, on, on this programme, but um, I think, you know, the main way it changed me was it made me... I, I In the immediate um, aftermath was that I... Um, well, I, was, I cried the first time I felt the sun on my face the next day. I... Uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, sort of almost born again, resurrected feelings. This thing of the preciousness and wonderful and beauty uh, that is life. I mean, it's just such a blessing. And I know it sounds a bit soppy, but when you've come near death, you you really, really, really learn to reevaluate it and appreciate it. And that's a great thing to get in your twenties because you start, you know, using your 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 vivacity not to 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 kick against the idea of oh i'm i'm immortal there's no such thing as mortality but to embrace your mort- your mortality and uh take control of it so i went off and skydive and i swam with sharks and i did lots of kind of crazy adrenaline fueled stuff but i also traveled on my own for a month afterwards around namibia and cape town and sat in it sat in my feelings pondered it dwelled on it moved around in it dismissed it came back to it you know it's always there and i i'm fine talking about it it's it's a exhausting anecdote um I, I'm not going to excuse my swearing there because it, it's, it's a really big story to go into. Seems reasonable. Uh, it is in this instance. I think you can bleep me out on that, and I think people might understand. It's it's a big, it's a big story, and and it's a wonderful one to tell. But I do kind of uh, feel a bit pale and worn after going through it. But it's not something. I don't know. I've, I, you know, it, it, I've had near death experiences since then, and, and that's obviously been the most acute one. I should say. Um, I would say rather, um, but I, I've got nothing that, other than good out of it. Really, I think the the positive drive you get out of wanting to live a life less ordinary has borne fruit. I think um, I, you know, I quelled the other things in me that that sort of not my equilibrium or calm about a bit. But it was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing, and it's it is definitely shaped part of who I am. Were you able to find a way to? Um to find e- equilibrium again i mean yeah to, to i mean get, i had the to, job for a start you, so i, I mean, had to focus on a very different reality and set of circumstances to my own and that was a massive as it is in an actor's life it's a massive headspace to occupy um and then to settle the equilibrium yeah it took time of course it took time um and you know i struggled with it and with the other two actors and you know, you go through, well, I don't know that you in general go through one goes through in general, but I certainly went through the thing of, um, wow, I need inoculating. I need to just be knocked out. I'll, you know, um, drink a lot of whiskey and take a sleeping pill. Uh, then I got ill because I came off the sleeping pill and then that day passed and then I was completely fine again. That was, I, I, I had a very sort of accelerated experience on the night and a very accelerated recovery. And I went to see the counselor twice. The second time he says, you're, you're more than fine. You are you're a strong man you're going to be good and uh, i believed him and he's right <laughs> thank god um but you know yeah of course it's it's it, it throws you but it takes you a while to i mean extraordinary things happen on that and i don't know how much detail you've read about it but one of the things that happened was as we found our salvation in this roadside curio shop that was run off the back of this uh, other drive-through um 
safari park where all these cooperatives have been making woven baskets and fantastic beautiful 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 original artifacts carvings and um, bowls made out of wires and recycled beads and just extraordinary objects and it was run by about three or four women who were in this hut and there was there were two or three men standing guard because it was a roadside truck stop for the night so people would come and you know get some coca-cola or whatever or, or just relieve themselves and have a gossip and that was our that was the 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 light on the horizon we ran to after we discovered that we were actually finally left alone tied at the side of the road and they'd gone and when i was there i had uh my shoelace was still tied around my right hand i hadn't bothered untying it and as i was telling the story and these women were clucking and tutting and ticking and just and crying and, and and shaking their head saying for shame for shame they steal from us too they steal from the poor it's so bad we're so sorry this happened to you in our country it was profoundly moving and then to add to that this hand came out this black hand came out and untied uh the thing that had been used for my bondage and my white flesh and the whole thing just snowballed in my head everything 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 we've well, whites have done to that culture and it, it, just the whole thing just suddenly smashed in and it was a profoundly moving moment that and, and I looked up into this man's face having been scared by the men that were there initially because could they be part of the gang because obviously everybody and especially because we had our head to the ground and our, our eyes our eyes averted from their face because they didn't want us to if you identify them it's you're a far more likely target for a killing um, so you, you, you practice hard at not witnessing what's going on and um, to be able to look into a black man's face in, in the night in South Africa and say thank you with tears running down your face as he takes away this final sort of token, I guess, of, of the night's um, the trauma, it was that was wonderful. And I, that was a huge part of the healing. And I wrote to him soon afterwards to explain that to him and um, he understood exactly what I meant. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show, Benedict. That's no, a pleasure. It's really nice to talk to you. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope that was all right. Benedict Cumberbatch is the star of Sherlock. The season finale airs Sunday, May 20th on PBS. It's available, the second series available on DVD uh, on May 22nd. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Craig Finn is the frontman of the Brooklyn-based band The Hold Steady. They've been critically lauded for their albums over the past eight years, in no small part due to Finn's lyrics. He's known for incredibly detailed, dense storytelling in his music. Lyrics that weave together allusions to literary characters, religion, and popular culture. Finn released his first solo album, Clear Heart, Full Eyes, earlier this year. Beasting on the weakness of the women who are thinking... You might be held to half the things you told them. The rockets that you left and the places that you slept. Moving through the bars and slowly stalking. As a kid in Minneapolis, Finn was hooked on the unpredictable music of the punk band, The Replacements. He ran out to get their album Let It Be when he was in eighth grade and discovered what was soon to be his favorite song, I Will Dare. 1984, when the record came out, um, putting the needle down and, and, and hearing the first song, I Will Dare, is that, you know, shambling and, and romantic. That bass line, it sort of makes you feel cool when you hear it. And I just feel like I get a little spring in my stuff, like walking down the street a nice day sounds like, you know.
really loved the sort of upbeatness of, of that first song. And the replacements to that point, you never knew it was a mixed bag. Positive. It felt like, you know, uh, that things were possible. It felt like, it's almost like, you know, the skies are clearing. I'm sort of able to focus on the good things rather than the bad things. And Fingernails and Cigarettes are a lousy dinner from that song. Still like one of my favorite lyrics. I love the lyric. I love, you know, if you will dare, I will dare. I mean, in, in the sense of it being a love song, I think it does take some bravery to fall in love. And it's saying, like, if you will dare, I'll dare. If you're ready to go here, I'll go here with you. I mean, it, it, the whole album stands out to me, just how drunken and obnoxious and belligerent they could be, but then just really vulnerable and sensitive, too. I felt like there was both sides. It was almost like there was the Saturday night, you know, drinking and going out and trying to cause a ruckus, and then there's the Sunday morning sort of being hungover and reflective. Up until then, I didn't really think you could be in a rock band. I mean, rock bands were people like Axl Rose or Steven Tyler, you know? They didn't look like people I knew. They were rock stars. And the replacements, yeah, they, 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 there was a very human element to them, a very believable quality. And I grew up in Minneapolis, so they were a Minneapolis band. It was exciting to know that, you know, my favorite band was living in my town. So it kind of pointed the idea that, you know, we're, you're going to get by 13 or 14. Sometime you're going to be 23 and 24, and you're going to be able to do what you want. And if you want to be in a rock band look cool and sit on a roof and smoke cigarettes then that was possible and that's that was there's optimism and hope in that still my favorite song Craig Finn on the song that changed his life, The Replacements, I Will Dare. Finn's solo album, Clear Heart, Full Eyes, is out now. After a break, video game journalist and X-Play co-host Morgan Webb talks about overcoming the popular conception that attractive ladies don't play video games and about who she thinks makes up the real gaming community. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. You 
know me mostly as a stentorian public radio host. And you probably know me as a cable TV cut-up. Every week on our show, Jordan Jesse Go, I would say that we share a little slice of our hearts. Yeah, and dick jokes. We are both complex and aimless. Leaving you with a empty, dirty feeling after the podcast is over. And a chalky taste in your mouth. Mm-hmm. But if you start to taste pennies, that's not us. That's a heart attack. And remember, a stroke is a brain attack. Yeah. We talk about, like, important stuff that's going on in our lives, like uh, babies and dogs and traveling. With some very impressive guests from the worlds of art and entertainment. Yeah, Sarah Vowell, Rob Corddry, Kurt Anderson, they've all had to sit through many, many <laughs> dick jokes made by us. It's all online at MaximumFun.org. Just click on Jordan Jesse Go or search for Jordan Jesse Go in your iTunes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Morgan Webb started her television career in a somewhat unlikely place, San Francisco. After graduating from UC Berkeley with a degree in rhetoric, she worked as a web admin at a dot-com before moving to what was then tech TV as a researcher on a show called The Screensavers. A few years later, she was on screen, and for nearly 10 years, she's co-hosted the video game show X-Play, the longest-running series on what's now called G4. She's been in front of the camera for more than a thousand episodes of the show, along with several others, and she's living proof that you don't have to be a 15-year-old boy to love video games. Morgan Webb, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you very much. So when you were a uh, rhetoric major at UC Berkeley, did you have any inkling of an idea that you wanted to get into the entertainment business? No, and I actually didn't want to get into the entertainment business. I got hired at Tech TV to do research, so... There was a show called The Screensavers. They had a lot of technical segments. So my job would be um, if they were doing a segment about video cards to kind of, you know, do all the research and double check that what they were saying is factual. Uh, sometimes I would do booking, like if they needed a location, I would try to find a location for people. So I sort of ended up in it by accident. I was doing, was producing Windows tips. So, you know, how to change your icons around, how to fix this, how to do like basic registry hacks, which is something people did back in the day. Um, and then they started sort of putting me on air for a segment here, for a segment there. And I mean, you're in production, an hour and a half live television a day. It is a machine. It is a beast. They're like, you come on here, talk for five minutes. And so that's kind of how it started. So what was it like for you to transition to a very different entertainment culture in Los Angeles versus um, San Francisco. I mean, you work out of the e-entertainment television building, you know, so it's like so we, <laughs> Ryan Seacrest is walking around or whatever. No, I mean, the Kardashians will definitely walk down the hall with like 17 assistants following behind them. I would never notice, except that people around me notice. They're like, that was... Zoe Kardashian. <laughs> there are good things and bad things about it. We're in the e-offices. That's totally weird. We have our own spaces that we cover in, you know, nerd, our nerd toys. And I think they're wary of us and we're wary of them. But, you know. It, it seems like your credibility experience must be different as a lady than it would be for a dude. And, and especially, to be perfectly frank, as a pretty lady... Um, <laughs> he thinks I'm a pretty lady. <laughs> I, look, it's a documented fact, but you know. But I mean, I think you know what I mean. That um, that I I just I just think it, there that you must have to deal with establishing your credibility much more 
frequently and regularly when you interact with people. This is like such a huge can of worms. Um, that's why I'm, I'm like, getting into it. I, I want to get into it. <laughs> I just don't know. I just don't exactly know where to start. Okay. So yes, if I were a man, would I have the job that I currently have? Probably not. The chances are very low. So in that way, I really need to be appreciative of the fact that I am who I am. Um, on the other hand, does it infuriate me that people to this day still walk up to me and say, you don't really play video games, do you? And I usually try to answer certain questions that I receive a lot with humor that doesn't necessarily make people feel bad for asking because fair enough, but also, you know, sort of deflects the question. So I, I haven't really come up with an answer for that yet. I, I First, I try to contain my rage. And then <laughs> I try to just like avoid the question because justifying who you are and what you're passionate about constantly is extremely frustrating. I, I don't think that there's an easy way to necessarily get rid of that prejudice. The way that I've addressed it is that I've always kept true to video games and technology content uh, because video games really are my love. And I hope that people see that and, you know, hopefully one day that they'll believe that women can play video games. And, and I hope that at least there's something that I can, that I can do about that. Morgan, uh, about this geek credibility business, you mentioned that you did these photo shoots earlier in your career. You did you did one with uh, Maxim and one with FHM. I did like a ton with FHM. Oh, you did a ton with FHM. Yeah, well, you had, a col- you had a column for FHM. I was like in it every FHM. month for like a long time, um, which is fun. I, I shouldn't necessarily say that it's like the greatest regret of my life. But when you're trying to establish credibility, being you know a pretty girl is really detrimental to that. And trying to emphasize that is is going to make sure that people don't take you seriously because there is a dichotomy between in our society between being smart and being you know female probably first of all and second of all an attractive female and so presenting yourself in that sexualized manner is going to detract from any credibility that you might have had so in that way i i do regret it it really it's not me it's not who i am but you know you got to live with yourself and and learn from what you do and try to move on and that kind of thing. So because you wrote a regular column for FHM, right? Right. And that's actually I enjoyed doing that. And uh, that was sort of the fun part about it is that I got to write a column in a magazine. I mean, there are people whose careers are predicated upon pretty ladiness. You know what I mean? There are people whose deal is I'm a pretty lady. I know. But here's the thing is like, Throughout my whole life, like beauty is not something that you achieve. It's something that just happens to you, and it's not something that you get to keep. So valuing yourself on that asset doesn't even make any sense. Valuing, on your, valuing yourself on what you've accomplished, what you know, how much you've read, like, you know, your friends and your family, that seems logical. There's something about a career where looks is... Are, are really important that is inherently tragic. It's sort of like, at least if you have a brain job, you know that your experience can make you better, right? Exactly. And that's something that I do struggle with is that as I get older, I am less and less valuable versus any other career that the more experience you get, the more valuable you are. Like I'm amazing at reading the teleprompter. I should put it on my resume. Like I am amazing. I can cold read anything for, you know, minutes on it. Like amazing. 
is that a transferable skill? No, not really. It's not really a transferable skill. And it's not, and it's worthless to me at a certain point. There also comes a certain point when I think that I'm not going to want to be on television anymore. It was, I never, I never really wanted to be. I fell into it by accident. And what you need to do to continue with that is not something that I'm necessarily constitutionally able to do. Go to auditions, put myself out there. Like, I'm just not interested. I just don't, I just, I just don't, I'm not going to do my makeup. I'm not going to, not going to work out. I never worked out. I hate working out. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how great would I look if I worked out? But I'm not going to because I'm super lazy. Also, because I'm playing video games all the time. Kind of really cuts into the exercise schedule. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Morgan Webb. She's a video game journalist and the co-host of the TV show X-Play on G4. I have found that if I joke around on my show about, you know, me just sometimes playing Katamari Damashi or John Madden football, I will be accused by hardcore gamers of being um, anti-game, <laughs> anti-video game. Well, okay, so we do make fun of people when they're like, I'm a huge gamer, I play Madden, and we're all like, whatever. But there's room for every kind of gamer. Like, you don't have to... I think what it is is it's semantics, which, of course, is why I was a rhetoric major in the first place. I love semantics. It, it's semantics. We we have one word for a gigantic range of, you know, entertainment, and, and that's really the problem. So everybody tries to claim that word gamer when for their own when it just happens to apply to everybody. So we either need more vocabulary or we just need to share the word. Well, I mean, I think one thing is that if you talk about core games – you're talking about a set of games that essentially still, you know, I started playing video games on my best friend's Nintendo um, in 1987 or 1988, and this is 25 years later, um, still appeal to that same demographic. It still appeals to 13-year-old boys. I am going to have to go ahead and object to Everything you just said. Really? Yes. Do you, you don't think that the core gamer is still adolescent boys? I, I actually know for a fact that that's sort of an old stereotype. We have a lot of, obviously, data about who watches our show, and we have a lot of data about who buys games. And that, that young audience, obviously, totally still there. However, people never stopped gaming. So that gamer, when he was 14, 15, 16, playing you know, maybe GoldenEye 007 kept gaming through all the modern games. So now, you know, you you have 12-year-olds, but you have a lot of 20-year-olds, you have a lot of 30-year-olds, you have a lot of 40-year-olds. People come up with their kids, and they're like, I play Lego Star Wars with my kid and trying to get their own kids into games. I play Warcraft with my kid. So gamers are definitely all ages. And when I'll do a signing, for example, I would say... I would say probably like 40% of the people that come are definitely in their 30s or above. I think the that core gaming market is still offering more or less the same products though. I mean, when I there are certainly I mean there this are is lovely like glass, Okay, go there ahead. Are be- hear there, your theory. Are, there are certainly beautiful exceptions. And I'm I am the furthest thing from ever saying that um, gaming is incapable of art or not a venue for art or whatever. Those are not the case. However, much more than any other media industry in the United States, 
the gaming industry is dominated by the equivalent of Transformers 2. Uh, I would say that I am very satisfied by a lot of the games that I play, and I do feel like they can have different meanings to different audiences. For example, I think the 14-year-old boy might play Gears of War, which they shouldn't because it is rated M, but and take it very literally and take that sort of broed out, you know, intense, intense machismo literally. Whereas I think an older player takes it sort of ironically and, and as sort of a, an example of this game stereotype. And knowing the people who make the game, like I, I know that that's sort of how they intend it to be played. Like they don't, they, they don't take that, that over machismo seriously. But you can, I do, it is fun to revel in that sort of overgrown steroid world. And, and so I, I don't think that it's necessarily only for 14-year-olds. I have played the Gears of War 3 multiple times with, through with like multiple friends by myself, and, and I find it a, a satisfying adult experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a thousand percent with you on that. I think maybe, um, I think you're absolutely right that it's not only for 14-year-olds. I think I was probably... Um, uh, inelegant in how I express that. <laughs> you were baiting me, weren't you? Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's part of my job. But um, are are games the part of it that you're the most emotionally invested in? It's the games. I'm incredibly emotionally invested in the games. What What do you really love about video games? I love the and it's the same one of the same things that I loved about uh, rhetoric. But what I loved is that I I really got to watch. The gaming industry figure out its language. It you go back, you go back to play old games, and they're still working out what symbols mean what. And now it's really a solid language that every gamer knows. You pick up a controller, and and you know that certain certain switches or certain indicators mean that you need to you know have a certain behavior, which probably makes it harder for new people to come in. Whatever. Uh, what else? the other thing I like is that that aha moment of the puzzle game, and. So Portal 2 is a great example of this. You are given all the tools you need to really to solve a puzzle, and then you have to think through in 3D space how you're going to solve this puzzle. And that moment of aha um, really is satisfying to me as a gamer. And that's a lot of what I play for. Well, Morgan, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to have you on the show. Morgan Webb is uh, the co-host of X-Play, which airs weekdays on the G4 Network. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I have a big old poster in my house. It's for Curtis Mayfield's record label, Curtome, and it's basically just Curtis's face beaming under a big floppy hat. When my son was born, I took the poster out of my office and I put it up next to his crib. He's still not old enough to understand who Mayfield was or why I'd choose a stranger's face to watch over him when he's sleeping. But there's something so kind in Curtis's eyes that I don't think it even matters, really. He can just bathe in that kindness. (laughs) 
That's how I feel when I listen to People Get Ready, probably the greatest song that Mayfield ever wrote for his group, The Impressions. Like, I have a direct line to this man in his remarkable reservoir of kindness and trust and faith. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the dealers honing. Don't need no chicken, you just thank the In 1965, when the success of the civil rights struggle was anything but assured and times were hard and dark, Mayfield sat down and wrote a pop song about faith. People Get Ready is a gospel song, really. But the gospel isn't exactly theological. It's about approaching even the darkest and most terrifying problems with an open heart. Facing down challenges with faith, not just in Jesus or God, but in love and decency. Faith that if you join others in doing what's right, the world will change around you. And here's the thing about the song. Here's the thing I want my son to know about meeting the world with an open heart. You don't need no ticket. You just get on board. That's my upshot. Chances grow thinner, for there's no hiding place against the kingdom strong. So people get ready, there's a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the Jesus You just thank the Lord. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Justin Morissette. Thanks to outgoing intern Joe Molinelli for all his hard work these past few months. Good work, Joe. We salute you. I actually did a salute here in the studio. Thanks to Bill O'Neill at WNYC for engineering the New York side of our Benedict Cumberbatch interview. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-up. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.